Welcome to the Well Ministry Podcast, where we want to help you understand the Bible. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Pastor Nathan Walter. All right, if you would turn to Genesis 37. Um, and I'm so happy to be in 37 today because it gives me one more week away from 38, which is a fun one. Um, when you decide that you're going to go straight through the Bible, you should, which we are going to do. I'm not going to skip anything. This is why I like doing it, because there are hard things that they skip over, and then someone shows you when you're in youth or in college, and you're like, why didn't we learn that? So we're going to do it. But it makes for interesting interesting sermons. Um, but we're in 37, so whew, relax. Um, Joseph's dreams. Uh, so, so last week, if you are with, with us, we talked of Esau's descendants, um, which they just kind of listed. But now we're moving on to uh, Jacob's descendants, the Israelites. And so um, in 37, it says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So now we're going to look a little bit more into the line of Jacob. Um, and from here on out, basically the Old Testament, except for our little pit stop next week, um, the entire Old Testament um, from here on out is pretty much, um, oh, is about Joseph. The rest is about Joseph, which brings up a question um, that people ask. Because it says, uh, you know, when we talk about the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith, we talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It doesn't say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. And, and God always says, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it doesn't say Joseph. So why? Especially since there's so much time. I mean, we're following these people, and next we, fo- we follow Joseph. And the answer is, that's how God wanted it. And stop asking questions. Just, you know. Um, but there's a difference. There's a difference in the relationship we're going to see between God and Joseph. With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you see this two-way communication. We see God, it'll even say God came down and spoke and then went up and they, they talked back and forth. Um, he sends messengers. Um, but with Joseph, the communication is different. Uh, Joseph, uh, we see God's hand moving and we also see God speaking to Joseph in like visions or dreams, but we don't see this kind of back and forth communication that we've come to know with the rest of the patriarchs. Uh, but we also see God moving um, through the descendants of, of, of Jacob's sons. He will continue to move through uh, the other children too, um, not always, um, and we'll see that. Um, and we've watched as God, as we've talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you may remember, we've watched as God repeated the blessing to Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. He repeated the same thing. Um, and Jacob is now living in the promised land. So if we kept track of what God said would happen, the promise he made, then we were seeing now the promise fulfilled. But there was something else that God told Abram long ago, back when he put, if you remember, he put Abram or Abraham, he put him to sleep, and he, and he uh, split the animal into, into halves, and God walked through it himself to make a covenant upon himself. Um, so he walks through, and this is what he told Abraham in Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. 
In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And we always love when God keeps his promises. You know, when God's like, you're going to have this land blessing upon you. You're like, God is a God of promises. He, he keeps them. We love that. But then, but then I bet they like, when they're like, oh, this one's about to come. Hmm, I didn't really like that one, right? Um, it, but God keeps his promises either way. Um, so um, let's read a few more verses. I'm going to split it up a little bit. So it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he, made an, and he was also Rachel's son, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Couldn't speak a kind word to him. It says that Joseph was 17 years old and, and was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Did you say that yet? No. All right. Um, so we know Rachel has died. And so he's most likely being raised by Bilhah, which is Rachel's concubine. It was her servant, her concubine. She had her own children, but because Bilhah was, since she was Rachel's concubine and her, uh, not Rachel's concubine, <laughs> um, Rachel's servant, Jacob's concubine, um, they're kind of this camp over here. And since Rachel died, Bilhah would become kind of the matriarch. So she is kind of helping, is raising Joseph and Benjamin. And if you remember, Rachel was giving birth to Benjamin when she died. And the word used here for wife in the original text, because it says his father's wives, actually only applies to legal wives. Uh, so it looks like in spite of Reuben's attempts to keep this from happening, Jacob did end up raising Bilhah and Zilpah to legal wives, which is actually awesome of him um, in light of what Reuben was trying to do to Bilhah, and, and he could have totally just whatever, but it looks like, because they used the word for legal wives, he did raise them up. Um, and so, let's see. Where am I? Okay, we're not to the dream yet. All right, so, so it said he's out in the field with Bilhah and Zilpah's sons, um, mostly, most likely because there's already a rift. If you remember... You gotta kind of go back in time a little bit. So, um, when Rachel died, Reuben was kind of concerned because he wants his mother, Leah, who had kind of always been second to Rachel, to be raised up as the head, the only legal wife. And now Jacob has raised up his concubines, um, and he was worried that this might happen. Reuben was worried this might happen, and it did. And so he raised him up. So you can see, we can kind of see Joseph is always kind of with uh, the, the sons of Zilpah and Bilhah, and you can kind of see because you can, uh, Leah's family is probably not liking the slight that has occurred, right? This is like the craziest family dynamic. There's disturbing power dynamics in the family, and we're going to watch it go from bad to worse. And I just want to set that up to kind of show you there's already a little bit of, of things that are amiss, of, of some unhappiness and it says that J Joseph was favored above all others, and he was given a robe of many colors, or an ornate robe. Um, and this is not the type of robe that a working man would wear. Um, it was more like a royal robe. In fact, okay, the only other time, this is interesting um, to me, the only other time this word was used is used in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 13, it says, So his servant put her out 
and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. And that word they use there the only, is the only other time they use this same word for the, the tunic or the robe that Joseph wore, okay? So, so she's wearing like a royal uh, tunic. Um, so it's a symbol of Joseph's status. I mean, you can all imagine you all have brothers and sisters, right? If someone gets something that no one else got, kind of like, what's the deal with that? You know, and especially wearing this like colorful robe, because like not everyone is wearing colorful things at this time. You know, dyes are expensive. Um, so and then, so they already kind of, there's a lot going on. And then when he's out in the field with them, he goes back and he tells on them, brings a bad report. And you can imagine like, well, you know, dad, um, I don't know if you noticed this. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm just not trying to be critical. I just kind of want to be helpful. And I saw them do something that I wouldn't do. I, and I, I, father, I know you probably wouldn't do it. And that's my concern lies here, dad. And I just wanted to tell you, I mean, you know how, you know how they are, right? And so they just hate him. They hate Joseph so much. And it says they couldn't even speak peacefully to him. They couldn't even speak. Uh, it says they couldn't speak peace to him. And the Jewish greeting is, if, what is the Jewish greeting? It's shalom, which is peace to you. So it's like he couldn't even speak peace. It's like he couldn't even say shalom. He couldn't even greet. They couldn't even greet him in the normal greeting. And he's their family member. Have you ever like hated someone like that? Just be honest. I'm just kidding. We all love everybody. But like, or you're just so angry with someone, you're just like, I don't even want to see them because I don't even know how I'll react. I'm really hot right now. And if I see them now, they're going to hear some things. And so I don't even want to see them, you know? And so you're like walking through Target and you're like, oh, right. we're going to go this way. And then we're going to go this way. Right? Anybody do that? Just me? I'm just kidding. I don't control our cart. The three children sitting inside control the direction of our cart. Um, but, and this is their brother. You know, there are people that we have these conflicts with or that we, we hate. And I'm not saying we should, but like, you know, before we were Christians. Um, and like, but they can't avoid him. He's there all the time in his robe, walking by, you know, and knowing siblings, you know, like they would like sit down at the dinner table and he'd be like, oh, this robe, get this robe out of my way. Oh, can you pass that slowly? I just don't want to get anything on my robe. You know, like that, that's just how siblings are. So, so they, they, they couldn't even greet him. They couldn't even speak peace to him. Um, and so it gets better in verse five. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars. Remember, there are 12 of them total. Um, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, first of all, they're probably already angry when he says, hey, listen to my dream. I've got some dreams I want to tell you, right? 
No one likes listening to dreams. They don't. Sorry, I've listened my whole life. Someone's like, oh, I gotta tell you this dream I had. Okay, you and me were there. We were at, we were at uh, the store, but it wasn't a store. It was like a library, but not our library, but kind of, right? And then we were running and we're angry, but we're not. We're also happy right? And it's you, but it's not you. And we're doing these things. And like, by the end of the story, you're like, and they're like, and then, and then we climb this ladder and, and you're like, and then what? And they're like, and then it stopped. And you're like, what a waste of my time. What a waste of my time. I don't want to hear your dream. Um, I don't, now, now if it's a biblical dream or it's got some significance, sure. But, but, and people are so eager to like, if, you know, if my sibling came like, let me share this dream with you. They're like, oh, okay. Um, and this one, this one, in this dream, when he tells them, it's fairly easily interpreted, right? I mean, he, it's not like, what does that mean? Like, I was doing something, and then your guys' things bowed down to mine. Isn't that weird, right? Do you, some, do you sometimes wonder if, like, okay, was Joseph just, like, incredibly naive, or did he know it would kind of annoy them? Did he know it would kind of annoy them, right? Because that's what siblings do, right? You have to wonder, like, is this guy, like, an idiot, or is he kind of a, a brat, right? Because what you all know, like, when children are bored... The best way to have some fun is to annoy your siblings, right? So you can just see, I mean, what else they got going on, right? They're all sitting around getting ready to, to go work or they're out in the field. And he's like, oh, let me tell you about my dream. Gather around. So I was really great in my dream. And you guys were pretty much where you are now, which was beneath me, you know, like, like, and, and then you can see, because then later he tells the dream and Jacob and the brothers listen. And you have to think like, you know how, Joseph's one of the younger ones. So you can see Jacob being like, everyone's like, ugh. And Jacob's like, everybody sit down and listen to your brother's dream. Listen, listen to your brother's dream. You listen. And you listen good. Okay? And you act like you're interested. Right? And you're like, you know, like, we have to listen to the dreams all the time. Right? And, and so, um, he tells, then he tells his father and the children this other dream where the sun, the moon, and the stars bow down to him. Um, which is another not very difficult thing to understand, especially because at the time, like the sun and moon represented the mother and the father and stars represented the children. So it was like really easy. And when he's talking about the mother, because Jacob says, should me and your mother bow down to you? He's actually talking about Bilhah, which, which is cu- customary now that she's a legal wife. And honestly, if someone, if, if, you know, if one of my kids came and said, let me tell you my dream, you were bowing down to me. You know, I'd be like, maybe one day, but not right now. Go to your room. Right? Right now, in this place, in this time, I am over you. I saw your sheaf bowing down before me, Flynn. So shut it, right? Um, and Jacob, he is annoyed. He is annoyed at this dream. Um, but it's easy to, to, to understand what he's saying. Like, no one was sitting there and like, what does this dream mean even? I don't even know. I might have pretended just to be annoying back as a sibling. Um, but it says his father kept this in mind, and it says his brothers were jealous. But you better believe, we'll see, they did keep it in mind. They didn't just let it go. Because they believed that dreams were messages from God. They believed dreams were messages from God. So even though it was an annoying dream, and even though he was an annoying brother, they gave credence to it. They truly feared that this might come to pass. They thought this might come to pass. He's already got the robe. He's already favored. Now he's got these dreams, which we believe come from God. And in this message, he is over us, which we're already seeing. So, so they were jealous, but they didn't disregard it. His father kept it in mind in like a good way. They kept it in mind in like a huh, kind of way, right? But no one disregarded the dream, not one of them. 
Okay, so we're going to pick up in verse 12. It says, Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance with his flashy robe. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So I don't know, I mean, I don't, if Jacob was naive to the situation, we all know parents can be a little blind to um, the partiality they show to certain children or the effects it can have. Or if he never just in a million years thought they, you know, thought they, um, like they hated him so much they would kill him, right? Maybe just like, oh, it's just a little, little sibling hatred. It's natural, right? For siblings to hate someone for all of them. But sending him to check, sending him to check on them after he'd already told on them once and sending him alone so far away kind of shows us that Jacob either didn't get it or he didn't expect them to hate him so much. Because Shechem is 50 miles from home. And if you remember, Shechem is a place where like Simeon and Levi um, told everybody to um, circumcise themselves and they could marry in and then they went and killed them all. So like, hmm, it's not really the, the safest place to go, right? Because like the way vengeance works back in those days, like no one forgot, 
right? So Shechem is kind of like an unsafe place uh, for them to be anyways. And it's kind of funny that in the end, Shechem was actually a safer place for Joseph to be than with his family. That just kind of shows you the power of, of jealousy and hatred. And so he comes across a man in Shechem who tells him they've gone to Dothan, which means two wells, which is 15 miles away, 15 more, more miles. And the brothers see him coming from afar, and they decide to kill him. And that's kind of how it starts. That, that's how sin starts. That's how hatred starts. It always starts from afar, right? It starts as an idea that, that we would never do. It starts out of something that, like, I mean, I had this thought, but it's so far away from reality. It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't happen, actually, but I'm just going to entertain this thought, right? It's how it always starts. I'm just going to entertain this thought for a second. I would never do it, right? And, and it's kind of easy to do something like that from afar. Like, it, it's not necessarily in our character or something that's natural for us. Like maybe we just like, man, I want, I want something bad to happen to this person because they did something to me. And then it becomes closer idea to like, I'm going to do something bad to this person. Actually, I'm acting as God would act to fulfill the punishment this person should have, right? And then all of a sudden, the sin's at our doorstep. And, and what was once unimaginable is now, has now made a home in us. And it doesn't seem so, so far-fetched. And it's easier to plan this murder from far away when all you can see is the fancy robe, right? When he's far away, they're not seeing his facial features that look like theirs. They're not seeing the similarities. They're not seeing something maybe he's whistling a song as he walks that brings some humanity to him that reminds them of what he was like as a child. There's no humanity to him from far away. There's just that robe. They're just that thing that they hate. And so as he comes closer, they're so fixated on what they hate that they, they can't see. They're not looking at the humanity, the things that they may have at one time loved. They become blind to it. And that's kind of how sin works. Like It's like a far-off idea of something we never do. And the reasons not to are so big. And then and as we entertain the idea more and more and more, it like overtakes the things that would stop us. And often it overtakes the voice that would stop us, that's whispering, don't do that, don't do that. People always say to me, why, why, would, why wouldn't God stop this person from doing this when they've been hurt? And it's like, listen, God was telling them not to do that. They just didn't listen. The voice got quieter and quieter and quieter because they would not listen to the voice of God. God, God was present saying, don't do this. And so Reuben, they make up in their minds before he gets there, we're going to kill him. And Reuben says, well, let's throw him in the empty well. Since Dothan, remember, two wells, that there's no way they would be there if they were just an empty well. So one is full and one is empty. Um, and so he plans on coming back and getting him. He's like, let's throw him in the well. His intentions are to come back and get him because Reuben has already caused his father great pain. Reuben is a little bit older and wiser and knows, I've done something similar and I've hurt my father terribly and I know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. I know what the cost is. I know how heavy that burden is to bear. And I'm not sure that I want to do that again. He's got a hint of what might happen. And being the oldest, he's going to be held responsible for this. 
and Reuben can't bear anymore. And maybe you could say Reuben's just acting selfishly and he just wants to like do this and like win his father's favor back. But if he's acting selfishly and wants to win his father's favor back, he wants to win his father's favor back because it matters to him and he doesn't like how he was treated. He doesn't like how it happened. So even if you are saying he acted selfishly, he's still acting selfishly to repair what was broken. So there are some real feelings inside Reuben of not having this happen before. And so they throw him in the pit, and then they do what you, you would always do in the middle of a murder slash, you know, kidnapping, is eat. Because it's very, it, you get hungry when you're doing those. I know, firsthand. It's very, you, you get hungry, right? And, and listen, not often, and this just kind of like drives home a point. Not, uh, not often are you in the middle of an evil deed. Like when we do something that's really hurtful or painful or like an, a heinous act like this, it's almost like you've got to do it really quick, right? Because like the more time you have to stop and think about it, the more you start to be like, this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. And they stop and eat lunch. And you know that he's like, hey, hey guys, ha that's funny guys. Hey guys, you know, like they're hearing him and they're, and they know what they're going to do in their hearts and everyone is just eating lunch. And you know, I can guarantee you that someone had the thought, maybe we shouldn't do this. But that's what happens sometimes. We get in a group of people who've decided to do this thing. No one speaks up and says, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this. Right? Um, and, but I think they're thinking like, okay, there's no way we can go back from this now. Because if we pull him up, he's going to go tell dad, right? And then we've lost favor. So there's no way we can go back from this. But it shows that everyone was like thinking about it. Because Judah says, well, what if we just sell him into slavery? Because then we can make some money, right? It's always, it's always a good idea if you're going to do something awful to make some money off it, right? Um, and so some Ishmaelite traders come by on their way from Gilead to trade gum balm and myrrh to the Egyptians. So they're, they're on their way to sell Egyptians the, the stuff they need for making mummies, for embalming, right? To make sure Anaxuna Moon lasts until the Book of the Dead is recovered by Brendan Fraser and the mummy, 1996. Um, anyway, so, but it says, wait, I'm, we have to talk about something for a second. Um, it says Ishmaelites, and then it says Midianites. It says two different things. Um, and so, uh, but the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Abraham through Keturah and Midian were sufficiently intermarried and became travelers and traders. So both of these statements are correct. Descendants of Ishmael and Midian. One is more of like when you say Midianites, people would understand, okay, that means they're travelers and traders at the time. If you said Ishmaelite, you mean like, okay, not of Abraham's line. So it's saying these are, these people are not of, these are not Abraham's line. They're not of the people of God and they were the traitors and they sell him uh, for 20 shekels, which I've read is a fair price at the time. And Reuben comes back and he's devastated because he knows what's going to happen to him as the oldest. He knows he's going to bear responsibility for that. And so at this point, he has to go along with the plan. At this point, he's like, okay, I've got to do this. Um, and so they go along, they dip the robe in goat's blood, and they present it to their father, who is as devastated as one would imagine. 
as devastated as one would imagine. Um, he refused to be comforted. And actually, uh, I wasn't reading this Bible when I was sitting. I was reading another one. And it said he wore a sackcloth on his loins and mourned. And you can imagine he, he mourned for quite some time, right, with just like a sackcloth on his loins. So this is hurtful in many ways because, one, your father is mourning, and two, he's wearing that for a very long time. You know, like, they're like, Dad, like, we can't invite anybody over to the house um, because this is so uh, strange, and we really don't like it. And kids really hate that kind of stuff. They get very offended. Um, I know Flynn, when he was, like, two or three, he was crying in his room, in his crib. That's how little he was. He was, like, terrified of some dream. And I go and get him in the middle of the night. You know how you go and you get him in the middle of the night? Moms are like, oh, what's going on, baby? Oh, baby. Dads are like, you know. Um, but I was saying a prayer over him, a peace prayer. And I picked him up, and I was carrying him back, and I didn't have a shirt on, and he's like, Daddy, put a shirt on. And I'm like, no, oh, man, just, mm. And I'm carrying him, he's like, Daddy, put a shirt on. And I'm like, no, man, he's like, why you don't have a shirt on? And I'm like, man, look, huh. like, it's hot. And, like, I toss and turn, anything, just whatever. Just And I put him in the bed next to me, and I'm laying down, and he's like, Daddy, put a shirt on right now. <laughs> And I'm like, no. And he's like, take me back to my room. <laughs> and I had to carry him back to his room and leave him there. I was like, he'd rather be left with whatever terror was in that room than me. Um, it was very hurtful. And so I wear a shirt everywhere. Uh, when I'm swimming, I just don't ever. Um, but so, so he's mourning. And, uh, and, and um, the Israelites are very um, visible. Like, they, like they're mourning to be visible, right? Like you can see from far away, that person's mourning, right? Um, and, and so he is mourning. Children are left to deal with that. And Joseph is sold to Potiphar in Egypt. And throughout this story, we don't really hear from Joseph. Like I said, he was probably in the cistern being like, hey, guys, but like it doesn't actually say that. We, we don't have a word at all of what might happen. Um. But it tells us later in Genesis 42 a bit about where he was. In Genesis 42, 21, um, when they said to each other, um, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. So they tell us later, the brothers tell us later, we saw how distressed he was. We heard him pleading for his life, and we wouldn't listen, and that's why this has come upon us. So from this verse, we see that he was pleading for his life. They had, they had brought him low. He wasn't the powerful, favored Joseph. He was begging for his life, pleading for his life. I bet he was crying out from that cistern distressed and pleading for his life. Kind of, I, I, I can't imagine what you'd be like, like disbelief that this is happening, right? Trying to get out. And then as you're being sold, like this, this isn't happening. Like, like I can just hear him as they're dragging him away, yelling back to them. And like, I just cannot imagine the kind of hatred that you would have to have to not to just let it continue, let it continue. But that's how sin works. It's not necessarily the hatred that's keeping them. It's that they've decided to do this thing and now they're stuck. It's kind of how it works. 
Because then it's like, if we go back, people will find out. Dad will find out. We will lose some favor. People will know who we are. People will know what we've done. And that becomes the trap. That becomes the trap of like, like people will know our sin. People will know what we did. And that is the thing that keeps them doing this heinous act to their own brother. I can't imagine what this felt like for Joseph. Can you imagine what this would feel like? I mean, you have to feel like, I mean, we have moments in our lives where we might may feel like all is lost. Or we might feel like, man, I had this friend, but they didn't turn out to be as good of a friend. Right? And that's like, uh, they dated, they dated the person I liked, you know? And everyone's like, you're right, they're a bad friend. But this is next level. The people that are closest to you, who know you the best, have decided what is best for them, what is best for their family, is to put you as far out as possible and put you in such a hopeless situation that you can never return and be in relationship with them again. You've got to feel pretty alone. You're surrounded by slavers whose purpose for you is merely profit, and you've been given over to them by the people who are supposed to love and protect you, but actually turns out they were your greatest enemies. How alone did Joseph feel? I don't know if, if we've ever felt that alone, or you might be able to say, I understand. I think I understand a little bit of how Joseph felt in that moment. It would seem like all is lost. The dream that God gave me, that I believed to be prophetic, what I thought his plans for me were, that I thought was infallible. Now I've been dropped so far, there is no way that can happen. The word of God will not come to pass in my life. The most powerful thing that we've been taught to believe, the word of God, the promise on my life is done. And he's, you would understand why he thinks that because, okay, I've been told God loves me. I've also been told my family loves me. And they didn't hesitate to not just drop me, but give me over to the enemy. What am I supposed to think about this God? Is God going? Is God more powerful than this emptiness, than this end that I've reached? And honestly, if you think about it, the dreams, this promise from God, this, this prophecy from God that is supposed to be for his good, right? The prophecy is that he would be over everyone. That should bring you hope, right? Everyone would like to have a, like, I'm here to tell you God says, everyone, you'll be over everyone. You're like, I like this guy. Guy's a prophet from God. We don't even need to check it. It's a good prophecy, right? Um, but but that that hope, that dream, that reason for hope actually becomes the reason that he's imprisoned. Like, it seems like the enemy is one because they took what God had meant for good 
and turned it to evil, right? They turned it for evil because they didn't want it. They didn't accept it. And often when we experience tragedy like this, we begin to doubt the providence of God. And this is a concept we're talking about today. We doubt the providence of God, that God's hand moves on our behalf, that God intervenes in the world. We, we might doubt that God uh, control, truly controls it all. And there are many Christians who believe, they're like, I, I believe in God, I believe God is real, but I don't really think that he intervenes in the troubles of man. I don't really think he intervenes in, in, in our lives. Or, or some people even think, yeah, I believe God controls everything, but I think there's some things that sit outside of the providence of God. You know, I've heard some pastors say, like, I believe in luck, you know, but like there's little pockets of magic. There's little like bubbles of magic that float around outside of the providence of God that he has no control over. And in this situation, you might, that's kind of how it works. We're, we're moved, we're, we're moved to make like theological decisions or like truth about God. We're mostly moved in our hearts by emotion. Like most people I talk to, if there's an atheist, you can talk to them long enough until they, until they boil down to, well, when this happened to me, I just knew that there wasn't a God. I just knew that he couldn't have been good. And then I started to find out other things that supported what I've came to establish as true based on what happened to me. That's how it always starts, based on what happened to me. And I think as Christians, we need to understand the providence of God. And let's look at the situation for a second. Let's look at the groups that can have an effect on the plans of God in this story. We have the brothers who in their minds are actively working. They are actively working against the plans of God. They are aware of the plans of God and they are trying to make them not come to pass. In fact, in verse 20, they say, now we will see what will become of his dreams. Can you, you see that they held it in his heart, in their hearts. So much later, haven't even talked about the dream, right? Haven't, haven't it said it, they didn't keep it in mind, right? They were just jealous. But then so many years later, they plan this act. And the first thing they say is like, now we'll see if that dream comes to pass. Now we'll see. Maybe I had, is there some revelation with them when they're doing this? Oh, that bothered you too? Yeah, it bothered me. We've been thinking about it these last years. Like, yeah, now we're going to, we will make sure that that dream does not come to pass. They didn't set, set aside at all. They were actively working against that dream. They had it in their hearts. This is the dream. This is what we believe God has said about Joseph. And now we'll see if that comes true. They're actively working against the plans of God. Then we have the Ishmaelites or the Midianites, whenever you want to call them, who are not following God at all. They're not, they're not working towards God's plan. They're not working, actively working against God's plans. They're just people who are passing by, right? They, they don't, they don't, they don't believe. They don't care, right? They're just, they're just like extras, just passers by. And we have Joseph, who is completely powerless in this situation, completely powerless. How many times as a Christian do you feel like that's the way it is? There are people actively working against God, people who don't care about God, and you who are completely powerless and outnumbered in a situation. And that, may, that too also causes us to be like, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? How can you move? 
How can you change the heart of kings when they don't believe in you or when they're actively working against you? When everyone either is actively working against you or indifferent to you. But let's see what happens in this situation. Joseph goes to meet his brothers in Shechem, but for some unknown reason, they are not where they are supposed to be. They're in Dothan, which is 15 miles north of Shechem. And if we look at where Dothan is, and I'm going to help you. I don't know if you can see this. Oh, did I burn the battery out already? I've been pointing at everybody. Oh, doesn't show up on the TV. Ah, practice. You should practice things. Anyway, so you see this, you see this green line coming from Gilead to Egypt? All right, that dot it intersects with is Dothan, if you're sitting in the back. And you can see Shechem. Oh, yes, I love that little mouse. Thank you, Morgan. Um, is beneath it. So they're in Shechem, and for some unknown reason, they move to Dothan, which puts them directly into the trade route where the Midianites would be passing by. Had they come up with a plan in Shechem, if they had stayed where they were, and Joseph came upon them, this would not have happened the way that it happened. But because something moved them 15 miles north of where they should be, they ended up on a trade route where the Midianites would come by. And even while Joseph is in the well, God is sending his salvation. While Joseph is in the well crying for his life, his salvation has already been sent a long time ago, set upon its path at the proper time so that they will intersect with the brothers who are not supposed to be there and take the brother that they have imprisoned, sparing his life. God causes, and get this, God causes an intersection between people who are indifferent to God and people who are working against God and puts them together to work out his plan for good. That's who he uses. He's not using Joseph. He's not using the man of God to push Joseph into the plan. He's using the people that are working against him and the people who are indifferent to him, and he intersects them to bring about his purpose which is for the good of Joseph. He doesn't just use one. It's not like I only got power over one. He's like, I'm going to use these people who are indifferent. I'm going to use these people who are against me. I'm going to bring them together and I'm going to bring forth fruit, fruit that you might not see for a while, but this seed is planted now and no one knows it. Joseph doesn't know it. The people who are indifferent, they don't know it. The people working against God, they don't know it. They think they've won. We'll see if those dreams come about now. The people who are indifferent, they don't care. Joseph cares, and to him, he's the one that, th that is also thinking, let's see if these dreams come about now. And God is like, are you kidding me? I've already started it. I've already started it. You're sitting in your hopeless situation, and it's already begun. I already started it months ago when I sent people traveling. I started it when I sent your brothers up. I'm already working it out. You just got to sit and wait. And the is never good, but when we wait upon the Lord, that's why we can wait upon the Lord is when we know he's moving. We can wait on the word. We try to do all these things and like, let's make this dream come to pass. Let's do these things. And we cannot do anything nearly as powerful as, as God can. And so when we trust God, we wait. We wait while he moves, while he moves on our behalf. This is how God works. Everything works together for the good of those who love the Lord. Everything. 
those people, there was no one outside his power. In fact, they are so under his power, they're so under his throne, living on the earth that is his footstool, that they cannot help but be moved by the plans of God. They cannot help but, but be helping to usher in the plans of God that they don't want to happen. The things they're trying to stop, they're ushering them in. He says, you're going to, my chief is going to be this tall and you're going to bow to me. And they're like, we're going to stuff that down. And God's like, no, you don't understand. His chief was supposed to be so much taller than just the head of your family. And you're trying to stop this dream from happening from what you see, the greatness that you see. But the greatness that I am bringing forth in him is much, much taller. You will be bowing much, much lower than you thought. Because that is how God works. We don't understand the plans of God, but we can wait on the Lord because we know that he is good and that everything works together for the good of those the Lord, those who love the Lord. And he's constantly working out his plans. The dreams will come to pass. And that well he's sitting in is a part of them coming to pass. They're a part of it. It's not, it's not a little uh, a side tour. It's not like, it's not like we have to wait here and I've lost the way. I'm a little bit off the path of what God is going to do. It's on the way. And these people who were fighting God and the people who were indifferent to God, this is how good God is. The plan is for their good too. They're saying, Let's stop these dreams from happening. And God is saying, you do not know what you ask because that dream is for you. That dream is going to provide food for you too. And even though you're working against me, I'm working toward your good. That's how good God is. He's working out something good for Joseph and he's working out good for those who don't care or are working against him. This is how God is. This is what God does. No matter what's going on in the world, no matter what's going on in our hearts, whatever, whatever's going on in our situation, through tragedy, through pain, God sits on the throne. God sits on the throne over it and he can bring good from it and, and, and no one working against him can stop it. So we don't, we need to stop feeling so powerless. I think as Christians we always feel like we're so outnumbered. Or we feel like I'm, I'm so powerless in this situation. I'm at work by myself and, and everything, everything's kind of shutting me down. I'm trying to do this and everyone seems to be working against me. And it's like, come on, wait upon the Lord. No, God is doing something, being like, you know what? Everyone seems to be working against me, and I don't know what God's going to do, but I know he's going to do something. I'm sitting in this dark well, and I've been crying out and crying out. And you know, there had to be a point where Joseph stopped crying out, right? His hope was in someone's got to hear me. Someone's going to do something. I'm going to change someone's heart. And then as he's going on along with the traders, you don't know who my father is. He could pay you money. You can, And he's trusting in his own wisdom and his own plans to try to get away from something. And then there comes a moment where Joseph just becomes silent. He's like, I've tried everything I can. I've done what I can do. No one is listening. No one is listening. And then I bet it's in that moment that he stopped and said, the God of my father, Lord, if you are listening, I need you now. I need your help now. And it is in that moment when Joseph becomes the most 
helpless, when he seems the furthest from the plans of God, that God's plan will not come to pass in his life, he's actually the closest to turning to God because he needs him so desperately. And God is just as close to us. And I want to encourage you, whatever you're going through, whatever just seems hopeless, hopeless, there's hope. And not just a little bit of hope, because God is a ruler of all. In Matthew 24, 6, it says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, I've never given birth, but birth pains are necessary to bring out the joy that is a baby. Right? I hear they're awful. Don't know anything about it. It comes with a lot of screams. If you ask someone, would you ever want to do a birth pain again? No one's like, yes, I love it. I want to do that, right? No one would, but if you said, but people have multiple children. So they must have decided that, yes, the pain was great. But what came out of that pain, this doesn't even compare to. This was but a moment in time, and it was a great pain. But I don't know any mother who said, I would not do that a million times. Well, not a million, because I have a say, and I can't raise a million children. But, like, I would do that again to have this. To have this. What brings me joy. And more spots of pain. <laughs> but brings me joy for the rest of my life. That brings me a relationship that's deep. That helped me a little bit, helped understand a little bit about the Father's love for me. They would go through this again to have this. And I'm telling you, we will go through birth pains in our lives. But God, but, but the thing that God says they're birth pains, the thing, the beauty in that promise, it wasn't like a beautiful, you shouldn't go around trying to spark your day up by reading this verse to yourself. There'll be famine, there'll be earthquakes. But the hope in it is like something good is coming out of it. Something good is coming out of it. These are birth pains. Birth pains bring joy. Birth pains bring fruit. Birth pains produce more. Birth pains make us fruitful. Birth pains make us multiply. It's not. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. When you're trapped in the well, when you're alone, when you have no friends, when your close, closest people to you have turned on you, when there is no hope, when the good that you dreamed of as a child cannot possibly come to pass, trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. Because God's plan has already begun to work itself out. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about The Well and other resources to help you study the Bible, go to thewellministry.co.